principle that I hear from both of the stories is I think that when you take, you'll learn by taking autonomous action. You'll learn by taking an action that you feel like will be in your, that will be beneficial to you. I think a lot of people want to not take an action until they know that it's the most optimized action or the perfect action. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Monday Millionaires. Today we had on the show Raleigh Williams. Man, Raleigh is the deal maven with an incredible story. He is my hero, one of my heroes for leaving Big Law after nine months, goes to the University of Chicago, elite law school, decides to do the unthinkable, quits Big Law after nine months, and has been, you know, he talks about how, you know, big ego, think I can do anything, but crushed it in business. It's just crushing it in life generally, I think. Super cool guy. What'd you think of the episode, Kevin? That was a great, great conversation, had some great kind of light bulb moments in there. And, and we talked about a lot of things, not just building his businesses and his transition out of big law, but kind of philosophy on what it takes. Lack of regret. I mean, you can always find things that you could have done differently, but, you know, there's no sense in kind of reliving what you can't change, particularly when it's a good outcome, like having a big exit. You know, we talk about kind of the the providence of things and sort of following intuition, even when the model or the math may look may look perfect. And we talk about one of his failed enterprises with a with a bar he got involved in and, and lost a bunch of money where everything penciled perfectly on paper, but just from from day one w- was terrible. So wide, wide ranging discussion, really dynamic guy with with pithy comments. He he loves quotes. You you yep. you requoted him a couple of times on the podcast and you know just one one of those guys that you can tell just has a, a mind. Yeah, he's one of those guys like, you, you know, these people, right? Like the, the person who just goes and does the crazy thing and you go, I want to do that. Wish I could do that, but would never have the courage to yeah. do it. And then there's just a group of people out there roaming the streets. And when you, yeah. when you catch one of those animals and you get the opportunity to examine them, like you, you, you got to listen closely to why they're able to do the thing that you psychologically totally. have been unable to do. And Raleigh is, he, he's a rare, he's a rare guy. I also didn't get the sense, I, you know, being aware of Raleigh, it's interesting, right? Because he went to University of Chicago Law School, it's an elite school. He's clearly a very intelligent guy, but you get this sense that he's more of a, like a could deal maven. You know, he's somebody who like knows how to get things done, knows how the world works, knows yeah. how to get a deal done, knows how to get an exit, yeah. knows how to scrap. He's not just pure intellect. He's not just on paper, he's kind of like, he seems like he's kind of got a little bit of everything. So super, super interesting guy and a great episode. Absolutely. We'll uh, let the episode speak for itself. Enjoy this discussion with Raleigh Williams. Raleigh Williams, man. Welcome to the pod. Thank um, you. Excited to have you. Really excited to 
talk about a bunch of things in your background, not the least of which is the fact that you quit big law and after nine months, which we believe may be a record save for maybe Peter Thiel, we started big law at the same time. I did seven brutal years. You did nine months. So we know which one of the two of us is, is smarter, but you, so, More, so your background yeah. just in a nutshell and feel free to, you know, to add to this. So you will pick up after law school, you graduate university of Chicago law school, one of the best law schools in the world. Frankly, I think it's probably up there with Harvard, Yale, Stanford, NYU, Columbia. It's in that, yeah. that band. So a really terrific education. You go to Vincent and Elkins in Dallas, which happens to be where Kevin and I both practiced. We were in the same building for a period of time, I guess. And then you do nine months. You do your tour of duty. You say, I'm out of here. You go to, you move to Salt Lake City. You start a escape room business, Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. A little play on words for your big law from your big law escape. You operate the business for a number of years. We can talk about that a little bit, and then you have a big exit. What most people consider to be a big exit, I think you've said somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty six million dollars. So, you know, really fantastic result for that. A little egg on the face of your family who pushed back on you starting that business in the first place. I think we can talk about that too. And now you run a, a a business called Deal Maven, among other things that you know somebody who had an exit of your size would be doing, like investing and whatever else. And so, really excited to to talk about your background and to just kind of wrap with you today. Tell tell us about start start with the big law stuff, man. Tell us about you know the having the the confidence to quit and start a, an escape room business. Yeah, I appreciate the intro. Appreciate being here, fellow escape law, big law, escape law, <laughs> big law refugees. It's an interesting um, term we can call it. As I look back on my time at Big Law, I didn't know this was happening at the time. It's actually just come recently as I've talked with coaches and had a little bit more time. I, I think when I joined a big law firm, it was it was really the first time that I started feeling anxiety attacks. I'd never really experienced that before. And I think it was really because it was the first time, you know, if you if you're in a bad class at law school, or if you're in kind of a dead end job that you hate, there's always kind of like a terminal point that you can look forward to. If you have a professor that sucks, you can say, well, I'm doing this for a semester and then it's going to be okay. Yeah. My job, big law was my first real job that I was getting paid real money to do. And it was the first time that I didn't really see anything to look forward to. And it's very, it's very hierarchical in the sense that you can see what your life is going to be like five years from now because you look at a fifth or sixth year associate, someone who's five years ahead, you could say, okay, is this a life that I really want to model myself after? And being in that job and not being able to look forward to an end point was super anxiety inducing for me. <laughs> and And I didn't know that's why I was feeling anxiety at the time, but what I realized was at the law firm, I realized that there were people at the law firm that really enjoyed doing it just to do it. And they weren't looking for an end point. They weren't looking to, you know, it's a pie eating contest where the winner gets more pie. And those people were excited at the prospect of eating more pie. And I had come from a family. I'm the youngest of five. My dad's a lawyer. So I had seen kind of a, I had seen a fully developed lawyer you know, general he was counsel. In, he was in big law too. He was a big. He was law never. In, he was never in big law. He he was at a big law firm in Tampa for ten months. Then he quit, started his own firm, and he just kind of did personal injury, business law, kind of what you see on suits today. So he was a little of, bit more entrepreneurial than than the typical. Totally. Life. Yeah. And 
And, and he was really a litigator of all things, like a trial lawyer. And so I kind of grew up hearing his war stories about trials and murder cases and, you know, real estate litigation stuff, kind of this like this idealized view of what practicing law would be. And I realized, you know, you, you join a law firm and you're like, oh, I know nothing about nothing. And I'm getting yelled at the fact that I'm getting nothing. I know nothing about nothing. And I don't know how I'm supposed to know it, but it appears that I'm supposed to know it somehow. And so anyway, that, that was like, that was my very, very early on. And right after I started my big law job, I, I studied to get a real estate license because I was like, I'll be a real estate. I'll sell residential homes on the side. Like I will do anything that's not this <laughs> because I was just. I was just so unhappy wow. when, when y'all were, cause obviously y'all came, I mean, Cravath is, is a big meat grinder of a law firm. Did y'all, did, did y'all experience something I've like that? I'm, I'm curious of someone who lasted seven years. Was it like, did you experience that? And you're like, I just need to push through this. Or you're like, oh, I'm open to learn. And you know, this is just part of the process. And I, a learner's mentality. Well, I, I think what's interesting about your experience and, and your background is for me. So you started in September at the exact same time I did, September of 2015, large law firm. We're in the same building, right? By <laughs> May, crazy. yeah, by May, I, I I was just figuring out what the hell's going on, right? Like I was just making sense of how to send an email or get into the doc, you know, whatever the file. So the, So when you say, hey, like I was out of there by May, and had had a plan to go do something else entrepreneurial and start a business and all this. I look at that and I go, here's a guy who had to have known he was going to leave, right? Like you went into it and you had to have been saying, I'm probably going to hate this and I'm probably going to leave really fast. And then you started on day one. And by the end of the first month, you were like, yep, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> right? Like it had to have been more, you know, cause that's a really short, very intense period of time. And, and, very busy too. I, I assume you had work and, you know, were you married at the time also? I was married. I had a young daughter. My dad was always very critical of big law. I had an older brother-in-law that graduated in 2010 that worked at Greenberg Targ as a litigator. And so I had seen his life and kind of the life of big, big law. When I had summered at Skadden in New York City, there were, as a summer, as a summer associate, I pulled three all-nighters at Skadden. And so I felt like I, I felt like as a summer associate in my head, going to Skadden was like, I saw the top of the pyramid and I said, yo, this is not it. But maybe if I go lower down on the totem pole, like I'll find something that's a little bit more enjoyable. And then when I when I found that that Vincent and Elkins was kind of more of the same, then I tried changing practice groups also felt like it was more of the same. And, you know, I just like I was like, I don't know. I started studying for consulting interviews, you know, to go to McKinsey or BCG or, you know, I, I was just like, I don't, I, I, I wasn't as patient as I probably should have been. I probably, I, I think I had what I call like Cinderella syndrome where I was like, oh, I'd gone. I felt like graduating from university of Chicago was all of the hard work that I needed to do and that the world should be ready to roll out the, the red carpet for me. <laughs> Like, like, yeah, a lot tell of me which show handles you on a silver um, platter. Like, yeah, like, tell me which business I'm supposed to be the CEO of, and like, tell me when I well, start. It's like, you know? I mean that. Yeah, that that story that story's 
funny because it like it reminds me of the Paul Hastings yeah. memo uh-huh. from earlier this year or whatever for first years, right? Where it was like, was like you don't own. It's like you know, like I hope some Scadden recruiter comes across this interview and is like, wait, our our that's associates insane. made a summer pull three all nighter. Like recruitment. what the hell? Like, yeah, that's that's what ridiculous. kind of sales like, job are we doing is, here? Is labor just for the audience's <laughs> benefit. Like the summer associate programs in big law are a recruitment tool, right? Like fancy dinners and you know it's supposed to be. You know, a lot of fun. We always joke as once you're an associate in the firm or a, a partner of the firm, like the summer is the worst because not only are you working like a dog, but now you're supposed to like take people around town and all of a sudden you're supposed to attend an event every day. It's yeah. very, very ridiculous. But I guess what I'm fascinated by is you, know, you get this U Chicago law degree. You go to Vincent and Elkins, which is, you know, a big three Texas firm. It's a great job. You're making as much money as people in New York City are making. You're doing it in Dallas, Texas. And you have the the cojones to say, forget it. Like, I'm out of here and I'm going to go start a business in a very, like, you know, I don't know what where escape rooms were at the time, but I suspect that was when they were very trendy, right? Is that, sure? T- tell us about how you, how you made that decision, how you prepare for that, how you got started. I was blessed with the sense of entitlement that I just told you about, you know, where's my, I I just was so, so confident in my ability to make a shit ton of money because I felt, because I had been successful at school. I was good at, you know, bubbling in circles on tests and writing papers. And, you know, I think I just, I just totally felt like the world was my oyster and I just needed to take a bet on myself and that the, that the partners at the law firm didn't get, I was just, I was just totally entitled and, and totally, you know, blindfully self-confident in my ability to make money irrespective of the industry. And so when I did Alcatraz, I had, you know, I'd seen a market watch article that said the unbelievably lucrative business of escape rooms. I had helped my brother start a trampoline park business that I had sold to go to law school. Cause I thought I wanted to be a lawyer for the rest of my life. And so I had been exposed to the entertainment business. My grandparents owned a water park in Florida back in the 90s. And so I, I kind of felt like I had some experience, but really it, I, I also felt like at the worst case scenario, I could have that business fail and go to business school with a great story about how my business had bombed. Yes. Like I just, I just knew that I, I didn't want to practice law. And so any alternative that wasn't practicing law seemed like a great option to me, whether it was being a real estate agent, yeah. a consultant, anything that was non-law practicing. And I, I felt like I'd gone to Skadden and I'd gone to Vincent and Elkins. And so like, I felt like the big law option was closed. So I was like, I don't care what it is as long as it's not this. And it, and it, re- it wasn't really the prospect of like, this is going to be the thing that like makes me a hundred million dollars, whatever. I was like, I'll make 50 grand for the rest of my life if I just don't have to wear business casual and ask for client matter numbers anymore and like talk to these old ass people and pretend like I care about their war stories from the eighties and about like how they did this clever clause in this contract 25 years ago that helped their client make money, blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, to your credit, you talk about being cocky. I mean, you were right, right? You did go make a shit ton of money. So, I mean, yeah, on a long enough time horizon, on a long enough time horizon, I was right. Why escape rooms? Right. I mean, yeah. Wanting to leave and go do something else is one thing, but you know, why escape rooms? I mean, it sounds like when you say trampoline park with your brother, water park with your grandparents, it seems like you've always kind of been around that 
recreational entertainment? What, is that part of what it was? It was in the ethos of what you and your family had done, or was there something specific I, outside I've, of this market watch article or break that down for the folks that are like, I want to start a plumbing company. And you're like, nah, I, let's family. ETA was less of a thing in 2015, 2016. I, I was obsessed with going through, you know, firms have these like intranet things where you could look at who's been at the firm and like what they're doing now. So I looked, I looked at everyone at Skadden and every partner yeah, at Vincent yeah. and Elkins. I was like, just find me anyone who started as a lawyer and ultimately did something non-law related. That was like, that was kind of my criteria. I, I didn't find many people outside of kind of executives that did it later on. After I saw the Market Watch article, yeah. I sent it to my brother who was still operating the trampoline park. He said, hey, there's this office space that is 7,000 okay. square feet. It's adjacent to the trampoline park. And I think I could talk to the landlord and I think this could be a decent space to do it in. I'd only been practicing for nine months. So I was like, Hey, I don't have any money, but I had, I, I had been, I, I had been going to lunch with a partner at, with an associate at KPMG that was there in Dallas. And we were also, he hated his KPMG job. I hated my law job. So we were trying to figure out something entrepreneurial to do. And the market watch article came and he's like, I think I could get my dad to lend me some money. And my brother was going to put up enough money to kind of get it started. And to me, we had worked on some other ideas that all kind of fizzled out. This was the first idea that for whatever reason, and this is something that I think it's hard to put in tweet form and it's really hard to like encapsulate it. But this was really the first thing that I was massively excited about. And I just had this sense that like it could work out. Like I remember when my brother was like, let's just the three of us all do it together. I didn't sleep that whole night. Like that whole night, I was just like thinking about it and doing research and trying to find out like where we would, where we live. And when like when my wife woke up at six o'clock in the morning, the next morning, I was like, this was in this was in this was in March. I was like, I think I'm going to quit my job and do this escape room thing. I felt like getting into you Chicago was my coordination and the rest was just details, you know, just a matter of time. And so she just she just up. trusted you implicitly. She was like, let's roll. Yeah. What she said was, I trust you. And since you've been practicing law, you are such a shadow of yourself mm. that anything that gets you out of that, I'm game for. To her, to her massive credit, because outside of her, yeah. there was one other person that I knew from Dallas that had made a lot of money in the savings and loan crisis. He, he's kind of who I you know, who I would map as kind of my rich dad, because my my father was against it. Everyone in my family was against it outside of my brother, who I was doing it with. My wife, Carly, and this other guy named Steve Houghton in Dallas were the only two people that believed that it was a good idea and worth doing. I don't even know that they believed that it was a good. I don't think any of them. No one believed that it was a good idea except for me. But they believed that I believed. Right. And and they were willing yeah. yeah. And, and so, it was a good idea for you know, you. my, my dad was adamantly opposed to it. My whole family was adamantly opposed to it. I moved in with my wife's parents with our three-year-old. They had an extra room in their house. And so, you know, I went from going, working at, working in the gold elevators of the Trammell Crow building in Dallas to living with my in-laws. Cause I'd saved up $30,000. That's the cash that I had. That was the runway that we had to make it work. And, you know, that's, that's what we did. And, and it, 
it wouldn't have been possible. There, it's so difficult to have something work just in and of itself. And to have the person who's sleeping next to you at night not believe in it or for you to have to continue to justify it over and over again and say it's going to work, you know, for you to have to be the like eternal optimist in the face of everything that's going on and the reality of what's happening. I don't think, I think I would have, you know, the first eight months of the business, it made zero dollars. We had to take on a $50,000 loan from my other brother who gave it to us at 15% interest. And my wife started posting on social media be, as a way to kind of try to help ends meet. And so she started, you know, posting about meal plans and losing weight because she, you know, went on her own weight loss journey. And she started to become the breadwinner, you know, because she was posting on social media, she was selling these meal plans. And, and that was what kind of helped help make ends meet for the first eight months, because we massively undershot how expensive the business was to get started, how long it would take. And just the amount of reinvestment that was required in order to, you know, fully do a build out of an escape room business, but none of it would have been possible. I, I, none of it would have been possible without a spouse that was totally on board. And we even had a partner whose spouse was kind of less on board and it became a, a drag in the partnership over time because, you know, business is hard enough and to, to have someone who's kind of nagging or critical or a downer, it's just, it, it would have been too much for me to take. I would have just joined business school and said like, oh, whatever, chalk it up to now. Yeah, I mean, I I was going to say it's such an underappreciated topic and under talked about topic, I think, in ETA and small business generally is like how important yeah, that primary stakeholder primary and spouse is, yeah. you know, having your husband <laughs> or wife on board is so unbelievably. And we talk all the time about, Got to find the right banker, got to find the right lawyer, got to find the right partners, got to find the right investors. But man, if if that spouse isn't on board, that's just such a different journey. I mean, that, that was point one. I, I actually loved what you say, point two as well, which I hadn't really thought about as you build a team, how much important it is even around the whole team to make sure that everyone family, everyone's on board. Because you're right, it, it, that, that can become a drag. Well, and it, really it, this, this has me asking myself the question, I wonder how many incredible businesses have been world-changing businesses have been built off the basis solely of lawyers saying, I need to do anything other than practice the law. <laughs> I need out. I will, yeah. I'm going to create microchips or whatever, yeah. I don't know. Paper. Well, we know. We know yeah. how excellent of business people lawyers you know, make, so I'm sure I that, that list the law is very, degree, very long. And there. we talked to Romin recently, who mm -hmm. you know he started an incredible business. He, he went to Harvard and then left. And I always say that I think that the guys and gals who have these elite degrees and they choose not to use them, like that's a brave bunch of people, right? Like unless there's something to your background where it's like, hey, I was in venture capital, I went back to beast. I don't know you know, something that makes, makes sense, but that's a, that's a brave bunch of people to go to law school for three years and then kind of move out. So, so you start Alcatraz and take us through that journey. I mean, we just talked about the spouses, the entrepreneurial journey. How long was it to get to the exit and what is it like to have a $26 million exit? I mean, that's, that's gotta be validation, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my my dad doesn't give me as much crap as he used to <laughs> of a sort. So so we started in 2016. We we sold <laughs> in 2022. It was and again, we didn't the the mistake 
there's a lot of luck and there's a whole confluence of events of ways that you can convince yourself that you're a genius. And uh, I call it the Midas touch syndrome. And so all it takes is the next business that you try to start or the businesses that you try to start as kind of an offshoot. None of, you know, when those don't go well, you're like, oh, I'm not as smart as I thought that I was. The, the, the big mistake that we made in growing it and scaling it was we, we under, we undershot the runway that we thought, we thought that we were building a conglomerate, right? We thought that we were going to build this thing and we were going to hold them forever. We had trampoline parks, escape rooms, ax throwing business. We built a brand new business from scratch called Labyrinth with, you know, computer programmers and all this, all this stuff in the entertainment space. And we weren't building, we weren't building to a buyer. We were building for just, we were building to grow cash flow, And it was kind of just this like, well, as, as long as it's accretive from a, just a net profit standpoint, like we'll do it. We're interested. And then about eight months before COVID happened, my partner that was in KPMG, I, I had moved out to Texas to build some new locations in Texas and North Richland Hills and Louisville, Texas. And the, the KPMG partner was w- one of our operating partners. And he had kind of decided that he wanted to move on and do something else. And I just started to get terrified at this idea. I, I just started to see all of the points of failure in the business that were basically the general managers. Anytime a general manager quit after running one of these parks, you know, it's like 55,000 square feet. We have trampoline parks, escape rooms. We have all of this stuff. And anytime a GM quits, it's kind of like hair on fire, all hands on deck. Like we got to figure out like who's opening the store. Like, am I going to open the store and like sitting behind the cash register or someone else? And I just, I, the, the prospect of doing it for another 10 years, I kind of started to get the same feeling of when I was practicing law, where I was looking five years ahead and saying, you know, I have seven of these. Do I really want 14 of these? And the answer started to become clearer and clearer that the answer was no. And so when we, when we started looking at potentially selling it, we, I, I went to a couple buyers most of them were in the trampoline park space because they have private equity money behind them. You know, they're kind of the people that made the most sense in order to buy them. And, you know, so they said, let me look at your business. So we show them the business and they, they all basically say the same thing, which is you're in too many bit. Like we want the trampoline park business maybe, but how are we supposed to separate this from the escape room business, from the ax throwing business, from the real estate business, you're doing too many things and it falls outside of, what we're able to buy because we want to be in one line of business, not multiple lines of businesses. And so we had built, we had kind of overshot any buyer because we had built a business that no one buyer really wanted to be a part of, even though it all, they all kind of, all the layers, all the operational layers had made sense to us because we were in the business doing it. We had overshot who could buy us. And so it basically made it, I mean, that $26 million took nine transactions. It wasn't a private equity firm that came and stroked a check. It was, we sold them off location by location, brand by brand and real estate. We sold the real estate buyers, some partners we bought out ourselves. And it kind of took us stripping back, stripping the business back down in order. So, so it could fit the, it could fit the buy boxes for SBA buyers and kind of local. So you know, sole operators in order to run them. And then real estate was kind of its own thing with real estate, private equity. And so I, I think the, the, that was the, that was the mistake that I had made in that business was running it in a way that 
I thought that I would be in it forever until I just got the sense that I didn't want to do it anymore. And then, you know, that, that created a three-year process of going from an enterprise value of $0 because we had no, no one that would actually buy us to $26 million, but it took, you know, stacking transactions in order to get yep. there. So 26 million, how much of it did you own? Some, some a wise man once said 100% ownership of something is substantial is a myth. You could be the captain <laughs> of a canoe or part owner of a cruise liner. The latter yeah. is a much better way to travel. You're, you're the person who said that. Well, you, you quoted somebody else who said it, but you, you said it. So I'm curious, do you, do you mind sharing how much of the, how sure. much of it you owned? And I, I owned across all of them about 40%. So okay. my brother, 40%, and then we would have capital partners that would do the, the 20%. So that's kind of each brand had its own. We also built it super sloppily from a cap stack table because airborne had preexisted me to Alcatraz, which was, you know, I was a bigger part of in 2017. When we started to scale, my brother and I said, let's kind of cobble all these things together and make them make as much sense as possible. So that way we have aligned incentives across all of these brands that we're trying to do. And so at the end of the day, it shook out to where to me owning about 40% of Williams entertainment group. Got it. And, and how does a business go from having zero enterprise value? And I think when you say that, you mean you didn't have any buyer, willing buyers. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To having a $26 million enterprise value three years later. What's, what were the key steps? The key steps for us were really, I would say, usually it comes down to focusing on two things. One is getting really clear, having a, having a specific brand that sits within a specific niche. So like the trampoline park business, we needed that to be its own brand because a trampoline park buyer wants to be in the trampoline park business, not the escape room business. And so the trampoline buyer is different than the escape room buyer. They wanna own brands that exist within niches that they can hope to continue to increase and dominate, right? They wanna penetrate yeah. a niche, not Williams Entertainment Group. That's kind of like, you know, we never even like marketed that, even though that's what kind of like how we internally said that it was worth it. So. The first thing was getting specific about what each brand does and having kind of org charts for each brand. And then the second thing was really focusing on the type of revenue that we were generating, which I didn't, I hadn't really thought about this until I talked to an investment banker that was potentially going to take the deal on. And there was one other transaction that had happened in the space that was for a 9x multiple, where most of the time entertainment stuff trades for, you know, two to four X. And the reason why they got a 9x multiple was because they had moved to monthly memberships. So if you go to Urban Air or SkyZone or any of these places now, right, it's almost always priced in a way to push you to a monthly membership. It's more expensive to go one time than it is to sign up for a monthly membership where you go an infinite amount of times. And so changing the revenue. They won't from even kind sell of any more memberships in our area, though, because there's too many hooligan kids. Oh, really? They won't. They're like, don't come. Yeah, they're like, don't come. Yeah, I, I mean, they, they, all, they all did it as an enterprise value driving mechanism, even though it's actually less profitable for the, it's less profitable, but private equity likes it because it's recurring revenue, right? So it was a financial yep. game yep. that they were playing that we just started to play mm -hmm. in order to, to build a story around how stable the business is, you know? And so it was those, it was those two things, I, I think getting specific about the brands and really segmenting them and building them for specific buyers, right? We basically decided that we weren't gonna be able to sell this to, to one buyer group, but we needed to make it look appealing to a sole operator. And so, you know, we 
it, you know, that, that was its own process. Basically, you're almost over diversified. The first instance is too, we're too diverse. We're, yeah. We were way too broad in terms of the businesses that we, that Williams entertainment group was in. Yeah. How much shared operations across the group had to be sliced and diced? Because one of the popular things in this space, mm -hmm. as you probably know, is this idea of the hold co, right? Everyone, everyone wants their old hold co. They want to do whatever the model is, whether it's, you know, tack on in the same industry, whether it's disaggregated or whatever. But part of that game, right, is to start cost optimization. You've got shared services up, up at the top with, you know, a, a separate real estate holding company and things like that. And so as I hear your story, all of a sudden, if you've gone down that road and you've got a real estate holding company here and a, you know, shared services finance team here, now you have to start bifurcating each of your brands into almost standalone businesses. H how much unwinding of that type of hold co shared service model did you have to do? Or were you pretty disaggregated already where everything it was been kind of it siloed been, on its own. It was really, it was really operationally siloing it enough to make a buyer comfortable with it. And the the thing that the thing that I think most people don't understand until they buy a business or potentially go through the process of selling a business is so much of it is having the story make sense, having the exit narrative make sense, right? Which is. Uh, yeah. reduction of reality. It's not true. I'm not breaching any warranties or reps and warranties of past documents that I've signed. But, but the, the, where you learn to hide the skeletons and have the story make sense and have the story that you tell somebody match with the P&L that you give them is an art in and of itself. I, you know, if you have a broker or an investment banker, that's a lot of times what you're paying them to do is to have a story make sense. And so obviously you hire smart people like right. y'all to help you kind of pierce through whether that story tracks to reality or what the alternate realities may be. But for, for us, the, the big thing was the general manager. We had, the, we had locations, we had locations that were getting run by one general manager that usually had three brands underneath it. And the last, the last four locations that we sold, we sold as a location with three brands in it because an SBA buyer is fine to do an escape room business plus a trampoline park business plus this other thing like they don't really care but when you're looking at private equity backed trampoline park businesses they don't want to have one acquisition where they're starting in the escape room yeah. thing you know as its own it has to make sense with the the type of capital that they've raised yeah. and so sba buyers are fine like they're like if it drives the bottom line i don't care but so it kind of it was it was pivoting it to that buyer to have it make more sense for them as opposed to trying to get 26 million bucks from one person who no one would give us the money. So to your, do it. your exit was to a variety of private equity buyers. And is that what you're saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. As private equity, I mean, SBA. How long was that exit process from your sale until the, first the last asset was gone? In June of 2020, right after COVID happened. And then the last one, the last one fully, okay. fully closed like two months ago. But those were, those were almost, those were to our, to capital partners that were in that group. The the bulk of the transactions, we kind of left operating the business. We were no longer really involved by September of 2022, August of 2022. And then we had these two parks that we had kind of been involved with loosely, but not super operational. 
So what's your perspective now having done it? You know, you mentioned that once yeah. you, you get the, you believe you have the Midas touch. Do you really feel that way? Do you, do you feel like anybody can go build a business and have it exit at that level? Or, you know, or do you feel like it was grueling? Which, what's your perspective? Oh, I think, I think it took, um, I, I think the thing that I learned that I think in order to have a, an exit of that level, it almost always requires a, a wave that's happening that's completely outside of your control. You either are, you either figure out how to ride it well enough and get off of it while it's still there. I, I don't, I, I think that anyone has the ability to, but I think most of the time people pick opportunities that, you know, won't, that very rarely lend themselves to it outside of just the, the perfect constellation of events happening that, that lead to it. There was so much, there was so much luck involved in it that, and the Midas touch is basically, you know, my version of the Midas touch is if you think that everything that you touch, if you think that everything that you touch will turn to gold, then like, just do it long enough. And you'll see that that is not the case, you know, <laughs> like you just, you just haven't had enough at bats. If you, if you hit, cause even while I was doing Williams entertainment group, I was starting businesses on the side. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work. I think when people look from the outside of a business, they think that everything is up and to the right. And, you know, you see this endpoint of, I started at zero and then, you know, six years later, it was $26 million. Like I, during COVID, right. And, and COVID, I was looking up bankruptcy lawyers. I, you know, there was a coin flip of whether landlords were going to come after the rent or not. And we shut down for six months. Part of the reason why we got serious about selling was because we had had this story for so long. The last capital partners that we brought to the table, we had this story of entertainment is recession proof, you know, and in 08, Disney raised prices. People will always want escapism. Mm. And so you know, we're an anti-fragile business. No matter what the economy does, you know, people are always going to want to escape, get out of their house. And, you know, we're at a low, a low enough price point that we're not sensitive to consumer price index increases, blah, blah, blah. We had all this total narrative about how it's going to work. And the, you know, hope we were like, hopefully the economy goes worse because then Amazon's going to put all these people out of business. We're going to own millions of square feet of retail. There was the whole story that we had. And it was all bullshit. It was all, I mean, it was, it's beautiful. And we believed it when we said it, it just turns out that it's wrong. And we were not pandemic, pandemic proof. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody, nobody foresaw the world closing down for six months. You nailed that recently in a post. I was trying to be respectful, you know, for once in my life. You, you nailed that, the, the myth of recession proofing, right? Like the idea yeah. that anything yeah. is recession proof when you don't know the make and model of that next economic right. event. There's no way to predict it. You guys had no, there was nobody who would have predicted that business entirely was going to stop and that we couldn't go do anything in, in person. And it's quite, even now I see like, you know, I was just watching a replay of a college football game from 2021, like SEC championship game. There's like nobody in the stands and like the people that are there wearing masks. It looks nuts now, two yeah. years later, <laughs> you know? And so the idea that we have any idea what's to come, we just, we just don't. Yeah. I love that. Too. And it's, I thought it was a great one. And that, and it's, it's okay to not know, right? It's like the, the quote is like, it's not what you don't know that kills you. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. It's okay to not know as long as you're saying, yo, I don't know. The problem is, our problem was we never kept capital reserves because we were always operationally profitable within three months of, of opening a location. So if we were opening a location, we never kept 500 grand, even though we had $100,000 a month of operating costs because 
in the decade that we had been in the entertainment business, we were always cash flow positive operationally within three months of getting the place open. And so we were just, it, it, you know, if we had said, yo, I don't know, maybe we could go out of business, then we would have been, then we would have been more conservative than we were because we were certain of something that just happened to be wrong. Yeah. So before we move out, Raleigh, anything you would have done differently in building the business and getting to the exit? No, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've probably more, I've moved more of a, Eastern of an Eastern belief these days of like it worked out how it was supposed to work out. I, I think there would be things that I would counsel other people to do. You know, I don't think I did it optimally. I don't regret any of it. I think I, I think I'll never sign a personal guarantee ever under any circumstance ever again. I don't care what the thing is, just no matter what the, I signed. I was always very hesitant to sign. And this is kind of a big thing that gets tossed around on Twitter. I was always very hesitant to sign a personal guarantee because of a class that I had in law school of a guy who's a CEO of a company. And, you know, that was basically, if you don't learn anything from this class other than never sign a personal guarantee, then your tuition will have been worth it. <laughs> right. And, and I did it on, on the last location that we did in Louisville, Texas. I said, you know, my brother, who's a little bit more of a gambler than I am. He's like, yo, we got to do it. Like, it's the only way that we're going to get the space, blah, blah, blah. So I signed it. This was, and that this was, was for the landlord wanted the personal guarantee. There's, yeah, there's a, there's a landlord personal guarantee because we did it all with kind of equity financing. We never raised debt for any of them. And so I signed it and we opened that location two months before COVID happened. And it's the, it's, it was the only location where we've ever had a risk of a personal guarantee getting Oof. called. And we, you know, it's capped at 700 grand. So like part of the reason why we sold these last couple was for me to finally be rid through an indemnity of of these these guarantees and so you know i think only do something where if you're right you get rich and if you're wrong you don't go broke if you're already broke sign whatever you know what i mean <laughs> sign whatever <laughs> in a way in a way that yeah. you can end it by the time you're rich you know because <laughs> if you sign it 10 years ago but it's uncapped then it could still take you down so you know i, I would do plenty of things differently but it, i'm i'm yeah. happy that it worked out the way that it did I always love that. Kevin, Kevin and I had this conversation recently about a different venture, but you know, they they had like a massive exit and they were like, you know, playing Monday morning quarterback over, could have done this differently, could have done this differently. You know, this person had equity that shouldn't have equity, you know, yada, yada. You're like, guys, like you had a, you know, fantastic outcome. Right. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's hard to look back and like, sure. May, maybe you would have done something differently, but yeah, you know, You'd feel different if things ended catastrophically, but with a massive exit, yeah, on, you know, on to the next one, move on to the next what, one. I, what I, or go ahead. I was just going to say, and so what is, is, is deal maven like your yeah. one active operating business you're chasing? Are you otherwise just no, investing not, or are I'm, you, are you operating I'm other business ventures? Not operating other, I, I have, I've, I've bought kind of majority shares, majority stakes in coaching businesses has been the thing that I've been doing for a while. Deal maven is the thing that okay. I'm really focused on. It's been a couple different iterations. When I started Deal Maven, it was going to be a software marketplace for partial acquisition. You know, I wanted to build a wave where you could buy. When I was operating the trampoline parks, I thought that it would be the cat's meow to sell 30% of my business to someone who had all this cash and wanted the passive income in order to do it. And so Deal Maven started as a platform to do partial acquisitions. I realized very quickly that I hated trying to run a software company, <laughs> trying to run a marketplace business. And I also kind of hated like having like <laughs> customers and like customer 
complaints and issues, whatever that people expect to to do. So now Deal Maven yeah. is podcast, and I'm looking at turning it more and more into like an exit incubator where someone who's looking to get their business optimized for an exit can can join and you know we kind of help coach what a business needs to look like in order to maximize an exit and time it for the right way that's kind of where deal maven is moving to more and more but yeah that's my that's my only active operating thing at the moment i love the background the lights i gotta get one of those i love that smb larger (laughs) yeah Uh, that's right yeah it's awesome but i want to know never i want to know I want to know what was, what was y'all's, what was the confluence event that led to like SMB Law Group, y'all making your own plunge into doing this together, right? Leaving big laws teat to go provide for yourselves. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a happy accident, but Kevin, you can tell from your perspective, because I think we, we, you know, we kind of had different vantage points on it, but uh, you know, I was in big law and kind of danced or I, I, you know, I was. Yeah. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not realizing like I should not be trying to work with a corporate or W2. Of course, I'll have to scrub this out if I, if, if the venture ever fails and I got to go back. But, you know, I, I had danced around, you know, followed some groups to different firms, started at Baker Bots, and then they went from 13 equity partners to six after about a year. So I think it was like May of the next year, went from 13 to six. So I moved with a, over to another firm called Gibson Knight Crutcher, where a bunch of people were Stayed there for the better part of five years and then wanted to get out of Dallas. And so we went up to Denver and then COVID hits, Kirkland calls and says, hey, we'll give you a boatload of money. Come work for us. I'm like, all right, this is a nice last hurrah in corporate. So I did it. But in the in the interim, I'm going, okay, what am I going to do next? I want to buy a business, right? I'd fallen in love with ETA, read the, read the HBR guide in like 2017. This is like 2020 now. You know, it's been incubating for a long time. So I started tweeting just anonymously on M&A and it took off. And so I started pinging Kevin going, Hey, I can't do these deals because I'm at Kirkland. It's too expensive. Kevin's running a side practice doing the deals in addition to his, you know, public company, fortune 500 job. And then I just twisted the hell out of his arm eventually because the, our situation, we had, we had work on day one with a lot of work on day one. Yeah. We didn't know how much of it was real or who was real or who's really doing deals and how, you know, valid is this group on SMB Twitter and whatever else. There was a little bit of uncertainty around it, but you know, Kevin and I started out doing pitch calls together, which was fun, Kevin, the good old days. And then it was like the beginning, the beginnings of uh, mundane. Yeah, it was a podcasts. lot like this. We're pitching so our firm and our services together. Yeah. The show very, the very yeah. reminiscent. And then it quickly became like, Hey, we don't have time to do that for every client. So we, you know, divide and conquer. Now we have 13 headcount and 10 lawyers. Kevin, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. No, I mean, I was only to, to circle back to something you, you said and asked earlier, Raleigh. So I, I was, I was in big law, I guess the longest of any of us. I had spent nine years, but I like Eric bounced around a couple of times. And I think in retrospect, like, I like how you, you said it, you've kind of unpacked in retrospect, like tying these like anxiety episodes and whatever to being in big law. It, it was always, I think, like, I think I had the same issues you did difficulty in the big law environment. Yeah. I really didn't like it, but I thought I should like it. And I kept chasing that grass is always greener. Right. And get like the, the pressure cooker of cravat 
it was it was pretty tough on me professionally though did well and enjoyed it enough but it was really difficult on my family we ultimately moved home to san diego to be close to family after our third baby was born that was my first lateral thought like being back in the promised land which anyone that follows me on twitter knows san diego is the promised land you know still hated it didn't like the work didn't enjoy the clientele you know well clearly then i gotta go where the rest of the world is moving which is texas i joined baker bots that's where i i met eric you know i had another lateral in there before i really realized like i think it's just big law I, I I wasn't enjoying it, anxious all the time. I hated it. So I ended up going in-house and I was like, I'm, because I still had that, like, you know, you go on the alumni roster and the alumni yeah. that leave the law firms are general counsel of JP Morgan or senior vice president at AT&T, right? So I I thought that was my next step. And I, I realized yeah. within a month, corporate America was not for me. Like if big law was bad, corporate America was like, I mean, on steroids bad it was it was so awful and so i was trying yeah. to figure out like well shit now what right well that for me then the pandemic pandemic almost became a blessing in disguise because shortly after i joined that corporate gig i guess i was there about six or seven months when when covid happened and of course we had operations in china so it was even earlier that that we kind of saw it coming because we were dealing with issues over there as early as like that december but going remote kind of easing the schedule because anyone in big law that goes in-house knows yeah. a, a corporate in-house job is like 15 hours of work. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, it's just not a lot. So yeah, I ended up taking side work and that that's what I fell in love with. I fell in love with the entrepreneurial stuff and realized like, man, this is, this is where, I, but it's one of those things, like you said, in your same journey, I didn't realize that until having done this. And then I look back and I'm like, right. man, I was, yeah. I was chasing something that just wasn't there, trying to solve for something yeah, totally. that was caused by the exact environment I was in. And it yeah. was your, well, it's it was funny like, too because people like would my think they would someone. look at you from the outside looking in and go, "Here's a guy who went to a top law school, works for a top firm, makes a ton of money. Like he or she has it made, right? Totally. You're on the inside going, I actually am stuck, yeah. and my options are either to go to another firm, you know, that's going to be exactly the same." Go down market, make less money, but have the same demands, right? You're not working any less or go in-house and effect effectively become Stanley Hudson. Like you just described, where like you're watching the clock, you're punching, the, punching the timesheet and you're making less money, right? So like, there's not a lot of great options for the corporate lawyer to, to exit to. And so I feel very fortunate now that we, this was a very happy accident. And of course, hindsight being 2020, it's like, well, sure, you could have gone and started your own practice a long time ago and it probably would have gone fine. And yeah, yeah, you know, but you don't, you don't realize that when you're in the moment and it's not even financial, right? Like golden handcuffs. Like it's not even so much that as much as it is like the well-worn path and kind of the totally. psychological cage that you put yourself in. Somebody asked me recently, like, why didn't you leave big law earlier? I'm like, I tried, dude. I looked at LinkedIn totally. jobs for years. Yeah. And they're all exactly the same. You know, it's a great company. Some of them very interesting, but like in the end, incredibly difficult to get because everybody's trying to get the good ones. And also like not that exciting, right? Like pay cut, but then I got to go in house and it's just, it's a, it's a hard equation to solve. And so that's why when I see somebody like you that after nine months, you were like, I'm out, yeah. you know, Deuce is <laughs> like, that's like, what? Like, how did you, 
Yeah, no, totally. Get the press. Like, I both just, hate you and envy awesome. you at like, the same time. I think right? I, like... I would say the the <laughs> principle, just from what I've the the principle that I hear from both of the stories is, I think that when you take, you'll 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 learn by taking autonomous action. You'll learn by taking an action that you feel like will be in your that will be beneficial to you. I think a lot of people want to not take an action until they know that it's the most optimized action or the perfect action. I, yeah. I think that action yeah. will always get rewarded and the more action that you take over time, I think that the reward will, will bear itself out. I think you should, you know, whatever, minimize risk, make sure you don't, you, you know, don't do something that, but you know, you, you tweeting on Twitter, and you doing something, you Kevin doing something on the side to kind of just kind of slate that that desire to do something on your own. I think that that gets rewarded over time, and I think people, particularly if you've if you've spent a lot of money on schooling and you've had a lot of success being told what to do in order to get the good grade, it's really hard to break that reflex of tell me what to do and I'll do it because sometimes you know you just have to do it and you know trust yourself that it'll work out over time yeah some sometimes taking that totally. slight gamble gives yep. you that confidence to start looking like oh maybe maybe i could take a little more risk maybe i can think a little further outside the box but yeah it's easy to get trapped in that like well no i don't know enough quite yet i got to keep researching right whether it's leaving the job whether it's buying a business whether it's starting a business right i mean you can you can research yourself to retirement if you if well you i think that's actually the like, the I paradox of why the high achiever that typically would follow the well-worn path is leaving in such large numbers to go do small business right because traditional entrepreneurship is like you know you know smart people go that is a high 90s fail rate like i'm probably not going to start the next google i don't have a lot of really good ideas like i'm probably not an entrepreneur and then they find ETA and they go, well, wait a second, I can go buy an existing HVAC business for one and a half to four times earnings. Business has been around for 30 years. I just got to not screw it up. I'm competing way down market on Main Street where it's very a very well-worn path. My competition, the yeah. bar is not incredibly high. Like maybe I can do this, you know? And so then they set out and tick, 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 tick. They end up making that leap but it's funny because, you, you know, these are the most accomplished, you know, people like you guys yeah. who have gone to the best law schools in the world. You know, you guys have always done well in your life, like doubting your ability to do well. And then you yeah. go out and you do entrepreneurial things and it goes well, right? Like shocker, yeah. you know? Yeah. So if you can decide, I think if, if right. more people, not everybody's an entrepreneur though, right? Like not just because totally. you went to Chicago law school and you could probably do anything doesn't mean you should, right? If you're a W2, you're a W2 and that's there's nothing wrong with that. Like if you right. want that stability in that life, but I just, I, I see so many people in my life now that I go, that person's an entrepreneur. It's why they're miserable. They should be working for themselves or capable of doing it. They're just scared. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to be the one to tell them to take the jump because, you know, because it's been interesting after I've, it's been interesting that after I sold the business, I, I was invited by a group, a private equity group to, to join as a partner and they're trying to take the company public and they're, it was everything that I would have 
killed for as a 2015 first year associate at Vincent and Elkins. And as I kind of started down the path with them, I started to get the exact same feeling <laughs> that I got at a law firm. And it, it was interesting because all of the story, I had different stories about why I had it at a law firm versus having enough money where I didn't really need to work with these guys, but I wanted to, there was a part of me that wanted to, but there was this obvious part that didn't want to, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. And the, the way that I tell my buddies now is when you have anxiety or when you have a very negative emotion consistently anxiety. So whenever these guys would call me, I'd get like anxious, I'd be like, shit, what the yeah. hell do they want? Like, I don't want to talk to them right now. For me, what I learned about myself is there are opportunities that my head is totally in because I've convinced myself that, it, you know, it works on the spreadsheet and I can excel out like, oh, this could be worth $50 million enterprise. This is going to, you know, everyone's going to yeah. think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread if I do this thing. But my heart is just totally not in it for whatever reason. And I've learned over time that my heart, you know, there's this quote from Pascal. It's like the heart has its reasons for, for which reason knows nothing. And you can come to this point where your heart just says, yo, it's time to move on to the next thing. Right. When, when I got serious about selling those businesses, I just was so sick of operating those companies. And I didn't know why nothing had massively changed about the business. What I couldn't have possibly known was that within some amount of time in the future, right? My wife was going to get breast cancer, stage three breast cancer. I was going to need to be home much more than I had ever been as an entrepreneur. And I was going to need to be there for my family in a way that I couldn't have been, that I at least never was while I was actively operating all of these trampoline parks. I didn't know. I didn't, you know, I, I knew that I was sick of running the business. I, but my personal belief is that my heart knew that like, a new thing was coming that I could have cognitively, I could have never figured it out, reduced it. And I think my heart was trying to say the same thing while I was practicing law. And they're like, yo, like, it's just like, yo, like it's okay. It's time. Like you got to get out. And I've learned more and more to at least make that distinction of like, am does I know my head wants to do it because it makes sense on a spreadsheet and I've done all my diligence, but like, is my heart in this? Am I excited yeah. about it? Does it keep me up at night because I can't wait to do it? And I've, if you had told me that seven years ago, I would have said that's stupid. I don't know what kind of mushrooms you're on, but like I'm not, and you know, I'm just out here to make money. But over time, it's like it's played out more and more to be true. And and I think, and I think it can be helpful if you're in a job that just gives you constant anxiety. That like instead of numbing it or not paying attention to it or just like you know, trying to do whatever you do to not feel it in that moment, like spend a little bit more time to have that be an animating emotion for you to move you closer to take a different action than you've taken in the past to potentially set you up in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Sunday scaries, you know, people who live Sunday their scaries. Life dreading, dreading Monday morning. I mean, that's just not a, it's a, and I, and I, I get the privilege or whatever to be in a position to be able to make totally. a change because a lot of people are just trying to put food on the table. Like I get that. And that's, that's admirable. And, you know, when you're in that situation, I forget who said it recently, but somebody was breaking down that statistically when you're struggling to provide financially, your IQ lowers by like 10 to 15 points on, because you're so 
laser beam focused on doing what you got to do. You're not thinking big. So I appreciate the fact that some people don't have the opportunity to do it, but totally. there are others who choose the treadmill throughout their entire life. And that's just, yeah. but there's people to, like for, for me. And I think Kevin, you're this way too. Like Kevin's an entrepreneur. Like you should have been an entrepreneur. You wanted to be an entrepreneur. You got a family, you had, a, you had a family when you were young, Long-term. like, you, you know, yeah. you, you followed the well-worn path and like, but now you're like running this company and you're, you know, you're into everything. You're, you're crushing for all intents and purposes from your, your partner's perspective. And there's a lot of people that, that are like that. And I think once you, you, you make that switch psychologically, I could never go back. I mean, I, I could never go back. I mean, the day may yeah. come where I do what yeah. I got to do for my family or whatever yeah. else, but I really do not want to go back. When COVID, when COVID hit, when COVID hit, I was like, shit, where the hell is my resume? Like, I don't like, cause I was in Texas. I was like, who was my last partner at Vincent? You dusted it all. Like, yeah. You were searching it out. You're like, resume. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I'm aware of your wife's story. I've read it many times and, you know, thank you for sharing that. It's a powerful message. You're glad that she's certainly glad that she's doing well. Totally. Yeah. I, yeah. I think. I, I think yeah. I think it's just a piece that gets underappreciated in business. We're talking about diligence and risk factors and again, spreadsheets. And I think all of that has its place to get your head where it needs to be. But at the end of the day, even if everything makes sense, the business deals that I've done that I regret, like a bar that I did in downtown Salt Lake, I did it. I did it because it made total financial sense. I had heard that liquor liquor licenses in Utah are the license to print money. I don't even drink, but we had this great option to purchase the real estate. I, I, I did the deal and my wife, who's much more attuned for things of the emotions than I am. She's like, I, she's like, I don't care about the bar thing, but like, I just don't think that you should do it. I'm like, no, like, Hey, listen, like I got this, you know what I'm saying? Like I, know what the spreadsheets say (laughs) and it was a disaster (laughs) it was a disaster from the beginning like and it had nothing to do with what we'd written down on paper like it all penciled everything made sense it it, but it just lost money hand over i mean we my brother and i were paying 15 grand a month out of our pocket to keep it afloat for eight months and finally we just i mean it was a three hundred fifty thousand dollar loss for us we're just like this is like we we bit off more than we could chew and my wife was more attuned to it than i was because she had just I, I just think it's a it's a piece that you shouldn't underestimate if you're looking at the HVAC business and there's just a part of you that's like, yo, this is really going to suck. Like, I just don't want to like I would say be open to pay more attention to that that piece of you than you otherwise would be, because that may have something there for you that you otherwise yeah. ignore. Don't don't get so in love with the model that. You yeah. Well, let's let's end on that, that note, intuition. Raleigh. So. This has been our business expert, the deal maven, Raleigh Williams, who opened a bar in downtown <laughs> Salt Lake City. Ladies and gentlemen. No, I think that's amazing. You should have called me. I would have told you that. I've never been to Utah, <laughs> but I'll tell you that, that is a good Yeah. yeah well, well, we'll have to talk about that separately because I, I I know a lot of people. I probably owed all of them Utah. money at some I'd point. I'd be fascinated to hear the story. That's <laughs> highly possible. We'll just, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Sincerely though, Raleigh, pleasure to talk to you. I know we've mentioned Deal Maven a little bit. We always like to end giving guests an opportunity to plug what they're working on. I don't know if there's anything else you want to mention about Deal Maven, about what you're doing, where people can find you, your socials, you know, what yeah, you want to shout out. Yeah, Raleigh will on Twitter. Um, I'd say if you, you own a business like. that you ultimately want to exit one day and are unsure of timing, process, 
then check me out on dealmaven.io or Raleigh Will, the Raleigh Will on Twitter. And we'll see if there's something we can do for you. Fantastic. Nice to meet y'all. Great chatting with you today, Raleigh. No, thanks for coming out, Raleigh. This was fun. Eric, any final words of wisdom? We'll do it again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.